Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. In episode seven of Truly the Goats, I spoke with Peter Gorton, founder, director of the John Donaldson Network as probably the world's leading authority on this all-time great of American baseball. As well as a historian of baseball in the Midwest, Peter has also written a number of articles on Donaldson and baseball. Included in the episode devoted to the story of John Wesley Donaldson were excerpts from one such essay written by Peter, as read by Danny Solis for this show. And for this special bonus episode of Truly the Goats, we are proud to present here the unexpurgated audio version of One Diamond at a Time. Enjoy. One Diamond at a Time by Peter W. Gordon Originally published in 108 Magazine in 2007 with updated editions in 2017 and 2020 Read by Danny Solis for the John Donaldson Network and the Truly the Goats Sports History Podcast I am clean, morally and physically. I go to my church and contribute my share. I keep my body and mind clean, and yet, when I go out there to play baseball, it is not unusual to hear some fan cry out, Hit the dirty n***! That hurts, for I have no recourse. I am getting paid, I suppose, to take that. But why should fans become personal? If I act the part of a gentleman, am I not entitled to a little respect? John Donaldson from the Ironwood, Michigan Daily Globe, June 10, 1932. During the close of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, small towns across the United States commonly pitted their local baseball teams against teams from other nearby communities. Deep rivalries were created among these teams and towns. These rivalries were not spawned by greed for prize money, but by something even more basic regional bragging rights. Typical of these town ball rivalries were two Iowa communities, Fort Dodge and Lehigh. Fort Dodge called itself a baseball town. Every other Sunday, fans in this rural Iowa community plunked down two bits to see their team match skills with teams from nearby towns or the occasional barnstorming club. Several miles away lay Lehigh, a grittier, agricultural, and coal-mining town. Every year, Lehigh longed to beat Fort Dodge in their annual baseball grudge match. The neighboring town, not surprisingly, refused to cooperate. In September 1912, things would change in Lehigh's favor. Rusty Whipple, one of the directors of the Lehigh Ball Club, cooked up an ingenious plan for winning the big game. Not only would Whipple scheme 
give Lehigh bragging rights over its rival, Whipple believed it would place the terminally in the red Lehigh baseball club back in the black. Fittingly, the money would come from Lehigh's own rivals. With the onset of autumn, some crops had been harvested and sold. Deep-pocketed Fort Dodge backers, flush with the extra cash, were eager to bet on the big game. Whipple began to put his plan in motion. Whipple arranged the purchase of 200 train tickets to transport Lehigh fans to Fort Dodge for the big fall matchup. Whipple, however, saved one ticket for a player who would ensure a victory for Lehigh, a win that would make Fort Dodge spend the entire winter contemplating its defeat. Whipple gave the ticket to a 21-year-old African-American pitcher from Missouri named John Wesley Donaldson. Whipple, however, didn't give the ticket to Donaldson because he was young or because he was an African-American. The wisdom of Whipple's $75 investment, the amount Donaldson sought for his services, depended solely on Donaldson's skill on the mound, and he was very skilled. The tricky part of the plan involved concealing the fact that John Donaldson was an African-American ringer pitcher on the all-white Lehigh team. If word got out that Donaldson was pitching for Lehigh, not even the most ardent Fort Dodge fan would risk his money. Complicating matters, the game was to be played on Fort Dodge's home field. As if the challenge wasn't big enough, Donaldson was no stranger to the Fort Dodge fans. They knew him well, for Donaldson had pitched for the barnstorming All-Nations Ball Club in Fort Dodge only days before, tossing a two-hit shutout while striking out 21. With the All-Nations team having just completed its inaugural season, Donaldson, on his way to becoming known as the world's greatest colored pitcher, was free to use his enormous talent in exhibition games. Undaunted, Whipple solved the puzzle. The morning of the game dawned cool, yet holding the promise of late summer heat. The Lehigh Railway Depot buzzed with passengers, boarding for the trip to Fort Dodge. Almost the entire Lehigh team had taken an earlier train to give the players plenty of time to warm up. Donaldson and Whipple, however, caught the last train scheduled to arrive in Fort Dodge before the 1 p.m. starting time. Whipple's plan called for Donaldson to remain on the train parked less than 50 yards from the field until the umpire called out his name. While Donaldson waited, the local gamblers circulated through the stands taking bets. Donaldson, young and hundreds of miles away from home, sat alone in the railway car deep in thought. As he waited to take the ball in his hands, his thoughts drifted back to Glasgow, Missouri. Finding His Passion A young African-American child growing up in the staunchly segregated community of Glasgow, Missouri in the 1890s could look forward to precious few opportunities. No one could have foreseen Donaldson's future for the oldest son of James and Ida Donaldson as he played on the Glasgow Sandlots. Ida, a devout woman, wanted her son John Wesley to become a preacher, like his namesake, a founder of the Methodist Church. She insisted that he remain faithful to Christian teachings and to follow the golden rule. Donaldson must have listened well to Ida's lessons. Written accounts of Donaldson's actions invariably mention his courtesy and respectful manner. Although Donaldson wished to please his devout mother, Ida simply could not stop her son's deep desire to travel beyond his hometown. In the summer that Donaldson turned 13, 
a traveling minstrel show came to town. Donaldson peeked through the backstage door to catch a glimpse of the performance. Harry Gillum, the African-American stage manager for the troupe, noticed the curious teenager with a sparkling personality, and the two strangers conversed. Gillum shared stories of his life on the road with the wide-eyed youth. Gillum was a great musician, but he was even more of a showman, a flashy entertainer. Hearing the old man's tales, Donaldson longed to escape the limitations of the Mason-Dixon line. Unlike Gillum, however, music would not be Donaldson's ticket to enter the wider world beyond the Glasgow city limits. In the back lots of Glasgow, Donaldson excelled at baseball. Despite his mother's opposition to his participation in the game, an opposition she based on its rough reputation in that era, Donaldson, therefore, played ball on the sly. Left-handed and blessed with a strong arm, Donaldson was always called upon to pitch because he could throw the ball the farthest and the fastest. He quickly rose to prominence as the city's best pitcher. Donaldson kept his renown as a baseball player hidden from Ida until the day she found a scorecard in his pants pocket. Ida saw the record of her son's hits, strikeouts, and putouts, and was shocked to learn he was playing a game of which she disapproved. Even more troubling to Ida, the scorecard revealed that her son had violated the Sabbath by pitching on a Sunday. Recognizing that she could not stop him from playing the game he loved, she made him vow never to play Sunday baseball or to even watch it. Donaldson's oath lasted only for a short time. A few weeks later, his team called upon him to pitch in the area championship game scheduled for a Sunday afternoon. After Sunday school, Donaldson slipped away from his mother and took his place on the mound. Having heard of the game, Ida deduced the truth and marched into the park, intending to whip her son soundly and send him home. As she entered the gate, however, she heard the crowd cheer and praise her son. She relented and became his most enthusiastic fan. Donaldson sat in the empty railroad car, waiting to make his dramatic appearance in Fort Dodge, Iowa. As a slight breeze carried the smell of freshly popped homegrown popcorn, the ideal treat for a sunny Saturday afternoon, into the warm car, Donaldson smiled, wondering what his mother would think of her little boy now. When Glasgow businessman Will Hanneke formed an all-black team, the Hanneke Blues, he penciled in the 17-year-old Donaldson as his pitcher and outfielder, making excursions to nearby communities in the summers between 1908 and 1910, the hometown club traveled sparingly. Newspaper accounts show that the young Donaldson was beginning to turn heads everywhere he went. In 1911, Donaldson hit the rails in earnest. The flamboyant W.A. Brown, owner and manager of Brown's Tennessee Rats Baseball Club and Minstrel Company, based in nearby Holden, Missouri, plucked Donaldson away from Hanukkah's Blues. Brown had managed traveling teams for years and had paved a well-worn track to the cities of the upper Midwest. The Tennessee Rats arrived in a town, set up a tent to host the minstrel show, and played a baseball game before crammed stands. In the early spring of 1912, Donaldson left Brown and the Rats and signed a contract with J.L. Wilkinson's All-Nations team. Donaldson quickly became the staff ace, well known as a strikeout pitcher. With each passing game, his reputation grew. Newspapers hyped the games between the local teams and the multicultural barnstorming ball club. 
One paper called him the sensation of the day. Still another chimed, Donaldson, great Negro hurler. And another proclaimed him as the big smoke as Donaldson's reputation expanded. In many communities, he was the first black pitcher fans had ever seen, and his lightning fastball and arching curve left lasting impressions on fans across the Midwest, including those sitting in the stands that September afternoon in Fort Dodge, Iowa. The Heat of Battle Umpire Harry Dressinger, doubling as public address announcer, proclaimed the starting lineups for both teams, beginning with Fort Dodge. When the raucous crowd had ceased cheering its hometown heroes, the umpire ran through the first state players for Lehigh. As he rattled off the names, the gamblers could be heard shouting out wagers. Finally, Dressinger declared, In the box for Lehigh, John Donaldson! The Lehigh faithful screamed at the top of their lungs as Donaldson stepped from the train and jogged to the hill in a Lehigh uniform. It didn't take long for Donaldson to take command. He struck out the first eight batters without the ball ever touching a bat. Finally, the ninth Fort Dodge batter managed a foul tip. The home fans shrieked with excitement, pounding the grandstand until it shook. They found him! They found him! Their taunts were short-lived, however, as Donaldson flashed his toothsome smile, struck out his ninth victim, and continued to fan 14 of the first 15 batters sent to the plate. Frustrated and angry, many of the Fort Dodge fans lashed out at Donaldson with disgusting slurs and invective. The atmosphere was getting ugly and almost beyond control. The boiling point came when the Fort Dodge catcher struck out on three pitches, and took offense at Donaldson's smile, charging the mound with his bat held high. Ultimately, cooler heads prevailed, and order was re-established. The catcher, whose behavior was universally condemned by both Lehigh and Fort Dodge fans, was physically removed from the field. Whipple's plan had worked like clockwork. Through his complete game shutout with 18 strikeouts, Donaldson had almost single-handedly erased the red ink from the accounts of the Lehigh Club. His name became a local legend as fans for more than two generations would recount the day John Donaldson appeared from a railway car and brought Lehigh a glorious victory over Fort Dodge. Growing Legend Donaldson's performance that warm September day was only a harbinger of the feats to come. Donaldson spent the next five seasons traveling with the All-Nations team, leaving behind tales of his legendary conquests along the way. In June 1913, Donaldson whitewashed the local ball club from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, leaving the local sluggers in awe. Batters complained that they could not make contact with Donaldson's fastball because the ball looks like a pea when it comes over the plate. Two months later, a Mankato, Minnesota sports writer reported, To say that he was a whirlwind tied up in several knots would be putting it too mildly. He struck out 21 men out of a possible 24 in the eight innings he pitched. And the first three men went down on the first nine balls pitched. The first 12 men who faced him fanned the air three times and quit. Other small-town newspapers furthered Donaldson's reputation declaring that Donaldson's delivery is nearly as swift as lightning, and that, sometimes, 
The batter was just preparing to swing the bat when the ball would already be tucked away in the catcher's glove. Others described Donaldson's fastball with hyperbole reminiscent of that later attributed to Satchel Page. On a bright day, his fast one looks like a small bean, but on a dark day, it looks like nothing at all. The All-Nations, however, had other weapons besides Donaldson. Wilkinson augmented his already formidable pitching staff with Cuban pitcher Jose Mendez, a future Hall of Famer. Mendez spoke for virtually every person who ever played for Wilkinson when he described the owner as the best American living who knows the game from A to Z and asserted that he treats all men fairly. With Mendez paired with Donaldson, the All-Nations barnstormed with the duo pitching on successive days. Wilkinson proclaimed that Donaldson and Mendez were two of the greatest pitchers who ever stepped on a ball field. Still, Wilkinson's actions showed the esteem in which he held Donaldson. Typically, Sunday's crowd was the largest, and the largest purse for the winners came on the Sabbath. Winners took home 60% of the gate receipts to the losers' 40, so it was advantageous to win when the crowds were the largest. Wilkinson, therefore, reserved his best pitcher for the big games to optimize his profits. Donaldson always took his turn on Sunday. The 1915 season saw Donaldson perform his greatest feat. In May, he reportedly threw 30 consecutive no-hit innings. As a result of this incredible accomplishment, Donaldson's deeds spread from coast to coast through the country's primitive newspaper wire services. One such article, entitled Great Pitchers Barred from Majors, outlined Donaldson's career as well as those of Mendez and Chicago's Frank Wickware. Although this notoriety bestowed on African-American athletes marked a change in tone within the color line, it did not result in a change in policy. According to one observer, the color line so tightly drawn around Major League Baseball had barred from Major League fields three of the greatest pitchers the game has ever produced. Chicago newspapers proclaimed Donaldson superior to any pitcher within the White Sox or Cubs Major League organizations and that Colorphobia was the only thing keeping him out. Hall of Fame manager John McGraw of the New York Giants wished he could make use of Donaldson's tremendous talent and pitching skills. He said, If Donaldson were a white man, or if the unwritten law of baseball didn't bar Negroes from the major leagues, I would give $50,000 for him and think I was getting a bargain. Riding the wave of his well-established fame, Donaldson attempted to take full advantage of his marketability by brokering his off-season services to owners who wished to cash in on his fame and name recognition. Donaldson, however, discovered that not all owners had the sterling character and integrity of J. L. Wilkinson. Donaldson spent the winter months prior to the start of the All-Nations 1917 campaign with the Los Angeles White Sox of the California Winter League. The Los Angeles Times touted him as the colored Rube Waddell, comparable to the pitcher who led the American League in strikeouts for six consecutive seasons in the prior decade. Donaldson's winter season with the Los Angeles White Sox, however, ended prematurely when the team refused to make the total payment for his services. In the 1917 season, 
in addition to his usual barnstorming schedule against top local teams. The All-Nations Club continued a competition that had started in 1916 with some of the top teams in all-black baseball. With Donaldson continuing in his role as staff ace, Wilkinson bolstered his multiracial lineup with the addition of budding superstars like future Hall of Famer Cristobal Torriente. All Nations won its 12-game series with the Indianapolis ABCs, the reigning champs of black baseball. In addition, they defeated Rube Foster's Chicago American Giants in another series. Unfortunately, the institution of the wartime draft interrupted the All-Nations season as Uncle Sam sent draft notices to many of the players. In 1918, after the First World War resulted in the demise of the All-Nations Ball Club, C.I. Taylor of the Indianapolis ABCs brought in Donaldson to bolster his pitching staff. As happened in California, after several weeks, Taylor reneged on his original pledge of $250 a month and insisted that Donaldson accept a reduced paycheck of $100 per month. An outraged Donaldson refused and took his services further east. Nat Strong, the behind-the-scenes power broker of black baseball in the New York City area, recruited Donaldson to join his Brooklyn Royal Giants to pitch against the New York Lincoln Giants, his strongest crosstown rivals. This gave Strong a better chance to beat the Hall of Fame black hurler Smokey Joe Williams. New York's African-American newspaper welcomed Donaldson with a banner headline, Donaldson to pitch for Royal Giants. The paper described him as one of the greatest pitchers in the country, who had been pitching such sensational baseball throughout the Middle West the past several seasons. Manager John Henry Pop Lloyd, a future Hall of Famer, was pleased to have Donaldson on his pitching staff, as he was the highest-salaried colored baseball player who ever wore a uniform. Lloyd dubbed Donaldson the toughest pitcher he had ever faced. Lloyd was not the only future Hall of Famer that held Donaldson in high regard. According to the Ironwood, Michigan, Daily Globe, Ty Cobb, putting aside his well-known racial prejudices, considered Donaldson as one of the three greatest hurlers he had ever seen. A New Challenge When Rube Foster formed the Negro National League in 1920, black baseball entered its golden age. The lone white owner of a franchise in the newly organized league, Wilkinson gathered the core players from the ranks of his old All-Nations team to form his new Kansas City Monarchs. Included among the former All-Nations players were Donaldson and Mendez. Donaldson hoped to assume a primary role in the organization as the club's manager, but Wilkinson passed over him, selecting Mendez. Donaldson, his arm suffering after years of throwing on limited rest while crisscrossing the country, became the everyday center fielder, where his athletic ability allowed him to hit over 300. Another future Hall of Famer, Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan, carried the bulk of the pitching load for the Monarchs. During Donaldson's three years in the Negro Leagues, the Monarchs rarely used him as a pitcher, except at select times against teams that featured primarily left-handed batters. In the summer of 1922, Wilkinson revived the All-Nations Ball Club and kept the barnstorming team on the road for two years, 1922 to 1923. 
this time as an all-black team. Wilkinson asked Donaldson to be the foundation of the team and serve as a mentor for the newly discovered talents that Wilkinson signed. Contemporary newspapers reported that the resurrected All-Nations team was used as a school for players of color who wished to reach a pinnacle in baseball. The boys are taught the fine points in baseball and, when ripe, are given a trial with the Kansas City Monarchs. Some of the great players seasoned under Donaldson with the All-Nations included Newt Allen, Chet Brewer, and future Hall of Fame inductees Cristobal Torriente and Andy Cooper. With a rediscovered strength in his rested left arm, Donaldson re-established himself as the premier barnstorming pitcher by pacing the All-Nations Club with wins in 24 of 26 games. Crowds flocked to ball fields all across the Midwest, the sites of his greatest earlier triumphs and the places where entire communities knew of him. At the age of 32, Donaldson was called upon not only to bring in barnstorming receipts to help support the Monarchs franchise, but also to serve as the headliner, the ace, the mentor, the coach, and the developer of the Monarchs' future stars. Donaldson performed in all these roles with the same skill and grace that he had exhibited since he left Glasgow. For the next two decades, behind the walls of racism and segregation, Donaldson continued to pitch for several professional and semi-professional teams. Wherever he pitched, most fans of all races appreciated not only his pitching prowess, but the quality of his character. Donaldson's reputation commanded such respect that he was offered larger sums of money to pitch outside the organized Negro Leagues for semi-professional clubs throughout the Midwest, especially in Minnesota. In addition to making more money, pitching outside the organized Negro League provided Donaldson the considerable benefit of far less travel. Sidebar, J.L. Wilkinson's All-Nations Baseball Club J.L. Wilkinson refused to allow a playing injury to keep him from fulfilling his baseball dreams. Near his 30th birthday, the Algona, Iowa native organized and developed a women's baseball team that traveled throughout Iowa and neighboring states playing assorted town clubs. From its inception in 1909, Wilkinson's unusual team was a commercial success on the barnstorming circuit. In a day before the advent of audio broadcasts, let alone video broadcasts of sporting events, and when attending a professional baseball game was a remote luxury to most regions of the United States, historian Jules Tygill credits barnstorming teams with bringing a higher level of baseball to communities in all parts of the United States. This was especially the case during the six decades when the color line barred non-whites from playing in so-called organized baseball. A significant majority of the games played on the barnstorming circuit pitted teams comprised of non-white players against professional and semi-professional teams. The barnstorming circuit, therefore, provided the proving ground for players who were not invited to play in the big leagues to show to audiences across the country that their skill at the game was beyond question. In 1912, Wilkinson transformed his female barnstorming club into a traveling team that was shocking in the Jim Crow era. Using his ability as a shrewd judge of talent, Wilkinson formed the All-Nations baseball team, made up of outstanding players 
with ethnic origins spanning the globe, with players connected to places like Hawaii, Japan, Germany, and Scandinavia, the squad was a rainbow coalition, virtually unmatched in American society at that time, a team on which whites, blacks, Asians, and Native Americans played together in a culture in which many believed separation was the proper public policy. The all-nations team and its cosmopolitan makeup started people talking, as one newspaper headline proclaimed, shows that all races can play baseball together regardless of color. The paper asserted that the all-nations team showed that it is possible for black and white to play professional baseball in harmony on one team. The all-nations team, however, was more than a social experiment. It knew how to play great baseball. Dominating the competition in the upper Midwest during the teens, the all-nations team's reputation grew. As one local sports writer concluded, the average country team has about as much chance playing with the all-nation team as a tallow cat would have in running through Hades without getting its eyebrows scorched. In fact, in July 1915, Sporting Life opined that all nations was strong enough to give any major league club a nip-and-tuck battle. In his pursuit of commercial success for his barnstorming troupe, Wilkinson also brought technological innovations to rural towns across the Midwest. In 1912, Wilkinson introduced an arrangement of powerful lights that, when draped around the diamond, were said to make the field light as day. The attraction of lighting up the darkness drew fans from around the area like moths to a beacon lamp. Trailblazer after a lifetime of experiencing and watching racial prejudice and segregation, Donaldson lived to see the day when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball in April 1947. Like many African-American players who toiled in the relative obscurity of the playing fields outside the all-white world of Major League Baseball, Donaldson's exploits and achievements were lost and forgotten by most fans who grew more accustomed to seeing African-Americans playing Major League Baseball. After his playing career ended, Donaldson broke a color barrier himself in 1949 by becoming the first African-American scout in Major League Baseball when the Chicago White Sox put him on their payroll. Once Major League owners acknowledged the vast talent pool that existed within the African-American community, Donaldson was seen as a natural bridge. Donaldson established his own territory on the campuses of black colleges, most notably Grambling College, looking for the next African-American phenom to send to the major leagues. On several occasions, he went to the Deep South, plucked an emerging black talent, and sent him to the Midwest to play for the minor league teams associated with the White Sox. Because Donaldson frequently knew the minor league managers personally from his time barnstorming, the players he signed knew that they would be treated well. On one such trip to the Deep South, Donaldson observed the talents of a young Willie Mays and recommended that the White Sox sign him to a contract. Unfortunately for Chicago fans, his superiors passed up this golden opportunity. In 1970, Donaldson passed away in Chicago at the age of 78. The man who earned his reputation as one of the best left-handed pitchers of any color through exploits reported across the United States who pitched in ballparks from Florida to California and from New York to Texas, was buried in an unmarked grave.
in one of the few cemeteries in the Chicago area that allowed African Americans to be interred. Only in 2004, when his life and career was more fully understood, did people who were determined to preserve the memory of those individuals who contributed to black baseball raise a proper headstone upon his gravesite. How do we measure John Wesley Donaldson? We cannot use the shorthand designation of Hall of Famer, as Donaldson, despite his reputation and accomplishments, was not included among the 17 enshrinees inducted in 2006's special election. Examining the statistical record from surviving newspaper accounts, we see a dominating pitcher with more than 400 wins and more than 5,100 strikeouts. Research continues to add information providing statistical evidence of Donaldson's greatness. At best, however, these statistics provide a foundation on which to build our appreciation of Donaldson's life. Statistics can never serve as the true yardstick of a man. If the statistical record is insufficient, perhaps we can look to Donaldson's reputation among his peers. In 1952, the Pittsburgh Courier conducted its poll of former African-American ballplayers and fans to determine the greatest African-American players of all time. Both the former players and fans selected Donaldson as the first team left-handed pitcher. Nevertheless, Donaldson remains the last of the five first-team pitchers from the Courier Pole who is not currently enshrined in Cooperstown. Only three of the 16 total first-team players have not been honored. Donaldson, Sam Bankhead, and Oliver Marcel. The fact that Donaldson's accomplishments were achieved on the barnstorming tour does not detract from his reputation. Virtually every baseball fan knows the legendary Satchel Paige and the tales of his barnstorming feats. Donaldson blazed the trail for Paige as he showcased his formidable talents in many of the same towns in which Paige would reprise Donaldson's performance as a headline-grabbing, barnstorming hurler. The documented opinions of Hall of Famers Wilkinson, McGraw, Lloyd, and Cobb reveal the regard in which they held Donaldson. Still, even his reputation as a ball player fails to demonstrate the full measure of the man. Donaldson achieved greatness in the face of unfair barriers imposed by society. The debate that Donaldson's performances were only possible against competition that fell short of major league standards would never exist but for the injustice of a system that established skin color as a prerequisite for access to the field. Even in the ballparks where Donaldson was allowed to play, prejudice and racial animus lay simmering beneath the surface. I am clean, morally and physically, Donaldson once said. I go to my church and contribute my share. I keep my body and mind clean, and yet, when I go out there to play baseball, it is not unusual to hear some fan cry out, Hit the dirty n***! That hurts, for I have no recourse. I am getting paid, I suppose, to take that. But why should fans become personal? If I act the part of a gentleman, am I not entitled to a little respect? Donaldson's character is revealed in his refusal to trade his heritage for professional glory. 
Rather than rejecting his race, Donaldson embraced it, refusing to advance his career to the major league stage at the cost of turning his back on his family. In a 1932 newspaper article, Donaldson proclaimed, quote, I am not ashamed of my color. There is no woman whom I love more than my mother. I am light enough so that baseball men told me before I became known that I could be passed off as a Cuban. One prominent baseball man, in fact, offered me a nice sum if I would go to Cuba, change my name, and let him take me into this country as a Cuban. It would have meant renouncing my family. One of the agreements was that I was never again to visit my mother or to have anything to do with colored people. I refused. Instead, Donaldson continued to pitch on the barnstorming circuit, a living embodiment of the words of Quincy Gilmore, who wrote in the Kansas City Call that no other enterprise has done more towards bringing the races to a better relationship with each other than baseball. For decades, John Wesley Donaldson demonstrated to everyone who watched him not only his skill with a baseball, but his character as a man, regardless of race, one diamond at a time. One Diamond at a Time by Peter W. Gordon Originally published in 108 Magazine in 2007 with updated editions in 2017 and 2020 Read by Danny Solis for the John Donaldson Network and the Truly the Goats Sports History Podcast Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.